Well, folks, it is a real delight to be back with you here today after so much time to renew fellowship with you and to see some new faces and to see some older faces, including my own. It's been quite a while since I've seen some of you, and it is a delight to see you again. Turn with me in your Bibles uh, to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2, if you will, please, just while you're turning there. I just have, I have such fond memories of, of the fellowship here in Carrick, Fergus Baptist. The old SWAT team, I don't know if it still goes or not, it is. I see a few heads nodding. And such a blessing that was to my life at that time in my mid-twenties. And I have such fond memories of this place, of you as a fellowship, of your support when we were starting off going uh, to Macrofelt, the love and encouragement that I received from the office bearers and all of the members here. And I've never forgotten uh, your goodness and kindness toward me. I never have. I always speak so fondly of you, uh, and I consider you family. I really do, and I want to thank you for that, uh, for all your, your, your love and appreciation that you showed for me back in those days and continue to do today. So turn with me, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll begin to read at verse 17 of Nehemiah chapter 2. I feel the, the book of Nehemiah is a very appropriate book to look at, given the situation we find ourselves in coming out of COVID. Up in Macrofelt, it has been like getting a steam train going again, the church. For two years, everything had to, had to stop just because of the lockdowns, because of all of the restrictions. And getting everything going again was like moving that old steam train, and it's been tough. And so the book of Nehemiah helps us to rebuild rebuild after something stopped. And for us to understand what's going on here, it's worthwhile reminding ourselves of the Old Testament context. You know, after the death of King Solomon, David's son, the kingdom of Israel divided in two. And you had the ten tribes in the north that kept uh, the name of Israel, the two tribes in the south that kept the name of Judah. In 722 BC, the north went into Assyrian exile, carried off. They never reformed as a nation again. And the remnant, the leftover of these people were the Samaritans that Jesus spoke to in his day in places like John chapter 4. In the south, Judah, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, well, they, they were carried off into exile as well, but not to the Assyrians, but to the Babylonians, starting in 606 BC or thereabouts. And there was three main waves of exile carried off into Babylon, where they stayed for 70 years. And during that time, the temple was destroyed, the walls were, built, were, were destroyed in Jerusalem, and the nation of Israel was basically in ruins, practically speaking. So, Ezra the priest comes back. Zerubbabel has rebuilt the temple. Ezra the priest comes back to reestablish worship after God has moved in the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to let the people go back to Jerusalem. And then 13 years after Ezra comes Nehemiah, who comes as a governor, a leader, to lead the people in rebuilding the walls. And that's where we are here in Nehemiah 2. Read with me from verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words of, that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. 
But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. We'll stop there. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks for this opportunity to come today, to spend time in your presence and to lift up our hearts to the one who inhabits heaven and earth and who deserves all the praise, honor, and glory. And we thank you that we can come in no other way but then through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived for us, died for us, rose again for us. We're thankful for the Christ who has saved us, for the one who took our place at Calvary, and for the one who lives forevermore. And as we gather before you, Father, in his name, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move in this great congregation, that you'd bless us, that you would encourage us, that you would enthuse us, and that you would help us to bring you the renown that you deserve as we're in this place. So speak, we pray. May we hear your voice and your voice alone, and may no man be seen in this place save Jesus. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Now, when I think of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem under the leadership of Nehemiah, I'm reminded of a story that happened during the American Revolution. The American Revolution took place in the late 1700s. And the story goes that there was a man dressed in civilian clothes on the back of a horse who was riding past soldiers who were repairing a defense barrier. There was a leader who was there who was shouting, barking orders at those who were fixing and repairing the barrier. He wasn't helping himself, he was just barking orders. But the man, the civilian clothed man on the back of his horse, he asks this leader who's barking orders, why don't you help? And he says, sir, I am a corporal. So the stranger apologized. He got down off the back of his horse and he went and helped. And he said these words to him, Mr. Corporal, the next time you have a job like this and not enough men to do it, go to your commander-in-chief and I will come and help you again. That man dressed in civilian clothes who got down off the back of his high horse and went and helped those soldiers was none other than George Washington himself, who later became the first president of the United States. See, George Washington wasn't too important to serve. He wasn't too important to get down off his high horse, but he was prepared to help. And this is exactly what we see in this man called Nehemiah. See, if you read chapter 1 of Nehemiah, you'll find that it ends with him being described as cupbearer to the king. He's cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, who is king over all the Persian Empire at this time. But it's reported to Nehemiah the state of the walls of Jerusalem, and he is brokenhearted of what is going on back in the place where God is supposed to dwell on earth. So he prays in chapter 1. He prays about the sin in the nation. He prays about the promise of restoration that comes from God. And he prays about the people that he wants to go and serve. And he doesn't just pray, but he actually practically gets down off his high horse as cupbearer to the king, this position of great influence in the empire. And he goes to help in Jerusalem. But before all the practical building could begin, 
He had to go to King Artaxerxes. He needed permission to leave uh, this place called Susa, which is modern-day Iran. You read all of this in chapter 1. And he had to wait just for the right time. He waits for four months between chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's just waiting for the right time to ask Artaxerxes. He doesn't want the king to think he's being disloyal. So he has to pick his moment. But eventually, at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, he's granted permission to go. And then he goes in verses 9 to 16, and he surveys the walls of Jerusalem, and they are in a very poor condition indeed. And that's what brings us then to verse 17. And in response to this very poor condition of these walls, we have the call to rebuild. That's the first thing I want you to note. Look at verse 17 again. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. So Nehemiah himself is stirred up to serve the Lord. He's stirred up to rebuild the walls. But all of this rebuilding requires community involvement, according to verse 17. Why? Because they are all in trouble. They are all in misery. He uses the word derision in the English Standard Version to describe the state that the nation is in. And this word derision, it's a direct reference back to the shame and the disgrace that has been brought upon the nation because of 70 years of exile. So the state of the city does nothing, nothing for the Jewish reputation there in that land before all the pagan nations, or gods for that matter. See, the surrounding nations would think that God was weak, that here in this place that God was supposed to dwell, Jerusalem, his dwelling place on earth, that this mighty God doesn't even have the power to protect himself because the walls are in ruins. This is the testimony that's been there, and it has existed for 140 years at this point. So people looking on think God is unable to protect himself or his people. And the end result of all of that, the consequence of that, God is robbed of glory in that land. And this 140-year-old bad testimony needs addressed. And so the walls are rebuilt to get rid of this public disgrace before the pagan nations. For God doesn't deserve to be robbed of glory. He doesn't deserve disgrace or shame. He deserves glory. He deserves renown. And so Nehemiah says, let's get building. Let's get going. He calls these people. And you and I as the church of Jesus Christ today, in this land, we are called to declare and to display the glory of God to the world around us. And so we must rebuild after a pandemic. Yes, it's tough getting the steam train going, but we must get it going. We must get back to evangelism. We must get back to serving. We must get back to proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because God's glory and the good of our communities is at stake. But Nehemiah can't do this single-handedly. And this is the point that we must all catch this morning. Everyone must serve. In Nehemiah's mind, there's no such thing as one-man ministry. This is body ministry he's calling for. All of the Jews, all involved. And here's the, the wonderful point in this, is that God doesn't need any of us. But God, by his grace, calls us. He offers this privilege that we would serve him and that God would change the world around us through us. This is how God often works, through his people. 
So all the Jews need to be involved in the rebuilding and all the Christians that are in this place today, whether it's Carrie Fergus or Macrafeld or Balamoni, wherever it may be, every Christian and every church needs to be serving. But the reality is that every church is full of willing people. There are those who are willing to serve and everyone else who's willing to let them. And it should not be the case. For every part of the body is needed. This is the Apostle Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It extends to all believers. They all have gifts. They have all been equipped by the Holy Spirit to serve the Lord Jesus. To serve his body for the extension of the kingdom of God. And you today, as you are here, you, not the person beside you, not the person at the other side of the church. You have been gifted uniquely by God to serve him in this place. What is that gift? Use it for his glory. You've been gifted in ways that no one else has. This is what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And this church needs you. And this community needs you. Sunnylands needs you. Castle Mara needs you. Glenfield needs you. All the other estates of Carrick Fergus need you serving together. This is the call that Nehemiah put out to all of the Jews for the sake of God's glory, for the good of the nations around them. And this is the call that extends to all of us today. So that's what we see in verse 17, the call to rebuild. The second thing we then see is the commitment to rebuilding. Look at verse 18 with me. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Now, like all good leaders, Nehemiah inspired commitment. He tells them of God's work, how God has already preserved him from King Artaxerxes. When he asks him, can he leave Susa, modern-day Iran, to go back to Jerusalem? And Nehemiah's message has motivated others, all others, to get involved. God is at work. God is moving. He's moved in the king's heart, Artaxerxes. Before that, he's moved in the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia. And now he's moving in the hearts of all of the Jews. And they say, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. So on the heels of this call that he gives in verse 17, in verse 18 we have this commitment, this mental resolve, this determination to complete the work God has given them to do. They're stirred. They're enthused. They've caught the vision of God's glory in the land and they begin to build. They dedicate themselves to this work. They're interested in nothing else and rebuilding God's glory, defending God's reputation. They want the pagan nations around them to see that this God has got the power to protect himself and his people. But the question then comes, well, how do we do this today as the church of Jesus Christ? See, the church today is not about a place. It's not about a building, but it's about a people. And so we today fulfill Nehemiah chapter 2 in our lives, this commitment, by committing to a people, committing to a congregation. See, God no longer dwells in temples made with hands. There's this shift from the Old Testament into the New. It's now about people and not about a place. And if you think of the early church in the book of Acts, it was built. But how was it built? Well, not with bricks and mortar, but with prayer, with the proclamation of the gospel, 
with provisions being made for the poor. They were people focused inside the church and outside the church, and that's what it means to build today. And the challenge to everyone in this place is this. Will you catch the vision for Carrick Fergus? Will you catch the vision for God's glory in this community? Will you commit yourself to this gospel-centered church? I'm not asking you, is your name on a membership role? I'm not asking you, have you been baptized? As important as those things are, believe me, I believe them to be important. But you can have all of those things and still not be committed. Are you committed to this place, to the work that's going on? We should be. This is what we see. And what does it mean? It means to consider others more important, more significant than yourself. It's to see that there's a mission that we have all been called to fulfill. We're called to love one another, to love those outside, to love God and his people, to love God and sinners, to love and have it permeate through our lives. This is what we're called to commit to. This is what we see in the Jews in Nehemiah's day. They don't just listen to the call. They commit to it. But thirdly, the third thing we see in verse 19 is that while we have the call, they commit to the call, then there are always, hey, there's always the challengers, isn't there? And that's what we see in verse 19. Read with me. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? You see, where there's flames of enthusiasm, the Jews at this time were filled with enthusiasm. They've been stirred by Nehemiah's call. They commit, but where there's commitment and where's enthusiasm, well, there's always someone standing with a bucket of water ready to pour it over the top of you. Such is life. In Nehemiah's case, you have Sambalat. He's from Samaria in the north. You have Tobiah. He's the Ammonite. He's from the east. And you have Geshem, who's the Arab from the south. And symbolically then, Nehemiah is practically surrounded by his enemies. He's surrounded by those who want to challenge what he and the other Jews are doing. And these become opponents to God's work, saying that the Jews are actually rebelling. He's surrounded by ungodliness. And you and I here in a place like this, we are called to serve the Lord, to rebuild the church, to show love to one another and people outside. But there are always those surrounding us who are motivated by ungodliness, who will try and stop us. It's no different today as it was in the days of Nehemiah. There's always been those who will jeer at us, who will mock us, who will despise us, who will hold us in contempt, who will attempt to intimidate us and demoralize us and accuse us of things that aren't true. They accuse them here. Are you rebelling against the king? There's always those types of people around, isn't there? The implication of what they say is that we're being foolish. And these challengers, they're always very good at touching at our insecurities, able to make us feel that, well, maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should just close the doors and look after one another and forget about what's going on outside, forget about building the kingdom in this community. Maybe we should just do that, err on the side of caution. Challengers are very good at making us feel that way. And who is it ultimately behind all of this challenge? Well, it's the devil himself. He wants to hinder the growth and the expansion of God's kingdom. And he tried to do it through Jesus. Remember the Lord Jesus, whenever he was growing up, oh, is he Jesus, the carpenter's son? 
And even when he went to the cross, when he's on the cross there, he's just treated as a mere criminal. But Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And so like Jesus, we need to see beyond the challenge, beyond the opposition, and keep on going for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God is too important for we to allow ourselves to be hindered. God's glory, the good of mankind is at stake. And so the church needs everyone serving, despite the challengers. We must be faithful. When facing challenges, the gospel is too important for the gospel. is the only message that is the power of God onto salvation to all who believe. And friend, if you're here today and you're not saved, you need to understand that. That only the gospel, that message of Christ crucified, where Jesus took the place of sinners as a substitute on the cross. And through simple faith in him alone, a person can be right with God, set free from their sin. That's the only message that can save you. It's too important for the church to let go of that. If we let go of that, we become a social club. If we let go of that, we become a community center. If we let go of that, we're of no real eternal significance or benefit to anyone. And so we must keep on going in our commitment, despite any challenges that may come from outside. Jonathan Edwards the famous revivalist said these words there on the screen. When the church is revived, so is the devil. And so we must be ready. We must beware. We must not be surprised when the fiery trial comes our way. Peter talks of this in first, his first epistle. And what we must realize is that the devil has no interest in comfortable Christians. Oh, but committed Christians... Well, they get his attention. Committed Christians get his attention. And a favorite means of stopping the committed is to challenge them through negativity. And that's what we see in Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem. But let us expect this challenge. But in expecting this challenge, let us still be confident. And that takes us to the fourth thing that I want you to think about. Look at verse 20. Then I replied to them after the challenge. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And when our commitment to the gospel is challenged, the most natural thing in the world to want to do is to defend yourself but it rarely achieves anything. It rarely achieves anything and simply turns into what, well, what we tend to call in this part of the world, it turns into something of a slagging match. And it results, what does it result in? Well, it results in all the rebuilding being postponed. We're no longer proactive. Instead, we become reactive. Whenever the challengers come upon the church and we engage with them in a way that we seek to defend ourselves. George Bernard Shaw, the Irish playwright, he, he said, I learned long ago never to wrestle with a pig. You get dirty. And besides, the pig likes it. The Lord Jesus said something very similar in Matthew chapter 7. He said, do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them on their foot and turn to attack you. 
So Nehemiah, he doesn't refute the claims of these ungodly men, these men who are outside Jerusalem, who are outside the, uh, the remaining Israelites, if you like. He simply declares with great confidence, the God of heaven will make us prosper. No arguing, no mudslinging, no defending of himself. He simply declares with great confidence, we his servants will arise and build. And in closing, Nehemiah distinguishes between God's people and those who have no portion in the land. These men, Sambala, Tobiah, Geshem, they're not God's people. They have no portion in the land. And so they shouldn't be allowed to influence God's people. We should have confidence in God, allowing him and his truth and his power alone and the motivation for his glory to influence us alone. Remembering at all times what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the symbolism of all of this is that the opponents of the gospel will never stop the building of the church. And so we should not be influenced by them. God is at work. Oh, they may scorn at scripture. They may deny our ethics. They may try and change traditional marriage, reject the the sanctity and the importance of the unborn life. They may challenge us in all of these ways. They may laugh at our commitment to the God of heaven above, but nevertheless, they will never stop us. And we must have this confidence that God of heaven will make us prosper. And this should give us great confidence as we live our lives. See, friends, the church is not on the back foot. No matter what the world might tell you, no matter what you might hear on the Nolan show throughout the week, the church is not on the back foot. Why? Because Jesus Christ is still on the throne. His kingdom is still being built. But the question to you today is this. Are you going to engage in that building? Are you going to commit to that rebuilding? Or perhaps you prefer another option. Perhaps you would prefer to stay in the king's palace where Nehemiah was as the cupbearer to the king with all of the luxury, all of the comfort. Or perhaps, well, you want to behave like some of the people out in the world, like Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem. You prefer criticism of what's going on within the church. Perhaps an option that you prefer. Or perhaps you're, well, you feel yourself too important to serve. You're like that corporal who wouldn't uh, help out his soldiers repairing the defensive barrier. When what you actually need to do is to be like George Washington. To get down off your high horse. And to help. This is the challenge that comes to God's people from Nehemiah chapter 2. What will you do? Will you engage in the rebuilding of the church after a pandemic? Will you help get this place going again? This is the challenge. And you have every cause, every motivation that you need in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our reason. He is our inspiration. For in him, he saved us through his life, his death, his resurrection, his high priestly ministry, and his coming second return. He is the one who responded to his father's call, who was committed unto death on the cross, who even though he had many challengers throughout his ministry, he ignored them all and continued in the mission that the father had given him. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This is what Nehemiah did. Is this what you will do? 
See, Jesus has come to build his church, all to the glory of the Father. And the challenge to us is whether or not we will be involved. It's such a privilege to have been asked, to be called, to be given a great commission. But the responsibility now rests on our shoulders as we look at Nehemiah chapter 2 that points us to the rebuilding of this great church that is belonging to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the church of Jesus Christ, purchased with precious blood on the cross. Thank you that he has done all that was required to satisfy your wrath toward us. And we today rejoice. I thank you for this great congregation. Thank you for their faithfulness down through many years here in this community. And I pray that as they try to get themselves going again after a pandemic, that you'll help them. Help them to hear the call. Help them, O Lord, to commit to that call. Help them to to ignore any challengers from outside and help them to have confidence that you, the God of heaven, will make them prosper. Help them, I pray. And we will be careful to give you the glory. For it's in Jesus' name we do ask. Amen. Amen. God bless you.